Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep Silhouettes by Jerome K. Jerome, first published in The Idler, February 1892. Uh, this was a magazine that he was the editor of. He got the editorship over a slightly more famous author, uh, although maybe not. It depends on how you judge fame. That slightly more famous or not author was Rudyard Kipling. Huh. Imagine choosing uh, a guy named Jerome K. Jerome over Rudyard Kipling for your for your magazine editorship. It seems kind of crazy, right? Maybe he would work che- more cheaply. <laughs> That's possibly. But I also think about how Rudyard Kipling is not a very idle man. <laughs> <laughs> right? He's a busy guy. Whereas Jerome K. Jerome has basically one claim to fame. Um, If people know who he is today, um, it's for his very famous book called Three Men in a Boat, which I heard about even though I was separated from it by a century or so. Um, I heard about it. I tracked it down. I read it. It's a great book. (laughs) Really enjoyable. And it's about three idle fellows who go on an idol. Uh, wait, you're, are you making a pun here? No, they, I, I mean, it, yes, but also they... I mean, spend, does the word, I've never thought of the word idol as a noun, except spelled I-D-Y-L-L. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, well, so you are making a pun because in idle and, and, and to be, I see. So Is you, that that's not how I it's pronounced? I-D-Y-L-L? That is one of the ways to pronounce it. It'll is also an accepted pronunciation. But um, but I-D-L-E, I don't think, is etymologically related. Uh, I don't know if it's etymologically related, but it's definitely physically related. Well, that- that's why I said, are you making a pun? I guess. I don't know. It's 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 a fact. It's a, it's a story, the three men in a boat, about three... Uh, idle men, as in they have no jobs, who, right. uh, because they're so idle, one of the doctors recommends them uh, go get some exercise, um, but they don't want to exercise too hard, so they go on a boat trip, and and uh, that way they can rest, and uh, camp, and rest, and camp, and uh, do it very, you know, lazily. And it's a wonderful, funny, uh, I want to say adventure, but that's Probably too strong. <laughs> Trip. Okay. So, yeah, um, it's it's yeah. it's a wonderful story. It's very funny, um, and I think if Jerome K. Jerome has a lasting legacy, that is clearly it. It was it at his uh, his time. He never had a su- success in his lifetime that was anywhere near the success of that book. That book was so popular. Uh, it rivaled, I would say, the the popularity of a book like Dracula for its period. It was just mm. a massive hit. In fact, um, one of the things I read about it was that uh, the year after that book came out, that the number of boats registered on the Thames went up by 50%. <laughs> That's wonderful. 
I think he also wrote a sequel to it, didn't he? He did. Um, it's called Three Men on a Bummel, um, which I looked up, and it means something to the effect of uh, trip, <laughs> walk. Uh, is related etymologically to the word bumming, you know, like bumming around. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it, it's another kind of idle activity. Some, you know, you go for a walk, but not with a particular purpose or destination. A roam would be another way to put it. And that one, I believe, is a bicycle trip set uh, in Germany. Ah. Is Bummel perhaps a word of German origin? It sounds German, doesn't it? It does. The thing about uh, this story is I wanted to read it because it's by Jerome K. Jerome. But when I started reading... By the reading, way, in, in German, I just looked it up. Uh -huh. In German, the word Bummel means a spree. Hmm. So considerably more active than one thinks of an idle being. Well, it's a curious word, right? So, for example, a ski bum is a person uh -huh. who spends a lot of time skiing. But they're not employed, right? They just hang around skiing. And they maybe hang around the slopes, give some lessons. But that's what they do, is they just hang around. And doing... It's a vigorous activity, right? But it's not a an activity that you would consider... Um, active in in at least the working sort of way. So the reason yeah. I, I wanted to read this story is because it was by Jerome K. Jerome, and I, I loved his humor. Um, and this one starts off with humor, but then, and it comes back to humor, but I, I think it's very, very dark, and I didn't understand it. And when I offered it to you as a story to read, I, I was hoping that you would be in part able to explain some of it <laughs> because there's a lot of it I didn't understand there's still some I don't understand um, in subsequent readings and in reading about uh, Jerome K. Jerome's life I think I understand more of it but I, I'm hoping you can shed some light on this <laughs> now there's a pun Eric story called Silhouettes yeah well maybe I can maybe I can but it would call for a harsh light so that everything will show up chiaroscuro. Yeah. Indeed. It's a very, it's a very chiaroscuro story. Uh, there are whole sections. I mean, there, there's one paragraph where the word black occurs. I didn't count. I wouldn't oh, yeah. be surprised if it's not a dozen times. Um, do you want to give people a sense of what's happening in this well, story? Well, that's, that's actually what I uh, – normally I'm not a big fan of summaries, but in this case I literally want you to tell me what happens in this story. I would be happy to read that uh, that black scene for you um, if you'd like me to do that first. No, I – well, no, I think – Let's do the summary then. Or yeah, my, let's my, have you I, do the summary if you can. My, I don't know that I, it'll be adequate to this story. I found it – uh, a powerful story. It's really well written. It's hard to believe that the person who could do this and the quite famous three men in a boat wouldn't do anything else of lasting quality because he really, he really can write. Mm -hmm, he can. Uh, I'd also say that the story changed for me on rereading my notes for the first reading uh, are clear. Uh, what I, what I told myself was that um, the story begins as a beautifully written pseudo memoir. He, yep. he tells us at first 
I'm now annotating my own notes. Um, he tells us at first that he is uh, he writes comedy. He's a he's a, a, a humor writer and the world should be glad that he is a humor writer because his instinct is to write about the real world, including, he says, um, all sorts of grim and uh, and uh, oppressive things. In fact, he has a tragedy in six acts just waiting, which is a terrific example of his own humor, since mm -hmm. Shakespeare's tragedies have five acts. <laughs> what what the narrator of Silhouettes is telling us is that Boy, you know, I would make it even longer and more tragic. There'd be more pain in what I write. Uh, so it starts out as this this interesting, self-deprecating and self-demonstrating notion that we have a humorist who would himself, of course, have turned to other things, be grateful that he's not because it would be so dark and then seamlessly. He goes into his he says, well, I grew, maybe it's because I grew up in a certain landscape. Mm -hmm. He talks about his childhood landscape and he he talks about it in chiaroscuro terms. And the one great um, deviation from that is when he says that the the flood, the, the, the pools of water that um, fill depressions in the in the beach. So as he looks out at the gray sky over the gray ocean and the, the dark sand. And he sees the light on these pools at night. They look not black or white, but blood colored. So the one deviation from black and white in his description is, is blood. Mm -hmm. uh, and he keeps that up with the, the, the dark and the light and occasional shots of red throughout the story. It, we go from his childhood locale to things that may have happened to him in his childhood or may have been dreamed in his childhood. And my original notes say a beautifully written pseudo memoir that goes from humorist to chiaroscurist and then to a way back. The way back is to take the movement of the narrator's viewpoint and the reader's attention and that's what makes the story this for me. In fact, the story becomes about silhouettes. It becomes how are we able to understand something where we have only the most hard edged, dark and unnuanced outline. There are pieces in the story where in one paragraph you get what you could legitimately metaphorize as a silhouette. It's a story. And then we don't get the answer to it. And as I reread this, it seemed to me I had somehow made a mistake. I, I when I got to the end and found what to me is the ultimate, that is the, the final, the, the, the ending, um, the ultimate expression of, of an unsolvable mystery, looking back through these images of black and white. Um, I no longer understood how I could have thought that this was a way back to humor. In fact, what I'm left with at the end is the notion that humor has been a defense all along 
for someone who, if he were to truly be candid with himself and with us, is rooted in flashes of images of the world and the people he grew up with and and his current wrestling with his own psyche that leaves him disabled from really understanding the meaning of of his life. I found it ultimately not humorous, but tender, brave, like like finding a child who is able to stand alone, uh, lost in the city mm. and traveling, but but not breaking down, not crying, not collapsing, but acknowledging here I am and I don't know what to do next. I, I found it a very powerful. I thought it was very good and very well written to begin with, but I found it in fact powerful and memorable on rereading. Yeah. Uh, I think I think that's that's exactly what it must be. It's so strange because it I, I see it as billed as being a short story, but I don't think it is a short story. Not in the fiction sense, really. I think that these are literally literal memories that he is outlining from his own life. Um, but he's also pointing out that some of these memories must be uh, fanciful because. Uh, some of them are fantastic, right? That um, there's a there's a sequence where he talks about the bar, and this bar being a, something that people all around the the beach where he lives, the coast where he lives, they all speak of it in hushed words as if it's a a monster and how it's destroying things and people have to. He he calls it an ogre. Uh, here's the line here. So putting one and another together, I concluded that the bo- this bar must be an ogre, such as a body reads of in books, who lived in a coral castle deep below the river's mouth and fed upon the fishermen as he caught them going down to the sea or coming home. Uh, it, he never at any point in the story says this was a sandbar that caused a lot of trouble for the fishermen. But I assume that that must be what it is. We never actually are told what it is. Later on, there's a in the same story. Well, in later on in another silhouette, I guess there is a sequence in which the ogre or something has thrown these pebbles, which are giant boulders, around and deposited a at least 40-year-old man at the bottom of one of them. Um, he's he's identified by a gold earring that was given to him. Uh, many years ago, and they don't know how he got down there. And it's never resolved. That particular example is one I highlighted also, Jesse. Um, There's been a particularly um, fierce storm. Uh, The bar, I presume, as you do, is uh, is a a sandbar that is typically under the surface of the water, but because we are on the shelf of the uh, the, the, the sea, when there are a lot, there's a lot of wind, the bar will cause waves to to crash up, particularly um, violently, and that's why they produce the kind of white 
whiteheads that uh, he refers to as the teeth of this ogre. Mm-hmm. Um, the next morning after one of these, after an, an remarkably fierce storm, even for this area of storm, um, everybody is standing around and they look into a pit, which is so deep, we're told that even a man standing at the bottom, raising his hand would not be able to pull himself out. But there's something going on down there. Excuse me. They think they see something. So, in fact, they do go down. They throw out whatever smaller boulders and pebbles are there. And they see someone at the bottom, as you say. Uh, The whole town is, is standing around. And a grizzled old woman is the one who says that's not a foreign chap. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's that beside him? It was a gold earring, such as fishermen sometimes wear. But this was a somewhat large one and of a and of rather unusual shape. That's young Abram Parsons, I tell you, as lies down there, cried the old creature wildly. I ought to know. I gave him the pair of these 40 year ago. Now, we've seen the word pray, as in P-R-A-Y, um, already in the story. Mm-hmm. The name of this young man is Abram Parsons. Abram is the name of Abraham before he makes a covenant with God, and his name is revised from Abram to Abraham, according to the Old Testament. Parsons is, of course, a name that refers to people who would, in fact, be part of a flock. Now, she said, I gave it to him, but she's wild. So, And it's 40 years ago. We know that 40 is the canonical number for death and rebirth, right? It's 40 days of the flood, which seems relevant to this storm, right? It's 40 years in the wilderness for the the uh, the Hebrews, uh, the Ivrit, who aren't yet Israelites. Um, so now this remarkably unusual storm has removed the heaviest of these huge boulders, and we see Abram Parsons now exposed to light again 40 years later. And then comes this paragraph. It may be only an idea of mine, the narrator is saying, born of after brooding upon the scene. I am inclined to think it must be so, for I was only a child at the time and would hardly have noticed such a thing. But it seems to my remembrance that as the old crone ceased, another woman in the crowd raised her eyes slowly and fixed them on a withered ancient man who leant upon a stick. And that for a moment, unnoticed by the rest, these two stood looking strangely at each other. Now, the very next line is from these scene scented scenes, sea scented scenes, my memory travels to blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that paragraph with all the words black in it, which I hope you'll read to us in a moment. Yep. What I would say about this paragraph from it may only be an idea of mine to this final image of the people unnoticed by the rest who stood looking strangely at each other. We're presented here with a mystery. Mm-hmm. What happened to Abram Parsons? Was Abram Parsons a man whom the old, the other old man killed so that he would be able to have that woman who would, I mean, there were clearly four people involved once upon a time, mm-hmm. right? And, and clearly the woman and man who exchanged glances knows what happened to Abram Parsons. 
But whether Abram Parsons was murdered or Abram Parsons was a would-be murderer, whether Abram Parsons was someone's true love or Abram Parsons was a villain, we, we have no way of knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. This is, it's, it's like taking, taking a globe of the earth and shining a harsh light at it and all you see on the wall is a black circle. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for me, the meaning of silhouettes in this story. That as we, as we look at flashes of memory, we, we don't really know. And this, I thought, was a prime example. Um, and if that seems right to you, then I think it, it quite literally serves as an introduction to the use of the word black. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I saw this scene as well, and I was thinking, well, it's they're not actually outlined, right? And then I realized, well, you can actually, with all this dialogue, it's not... What you can do, though, is in the same way that he imagines what's going on and figures out or at least notes things, it's like when we're in a museum and we see a, a painting and there's a ship, and on the shore there are people... Uh, looking at that ship and there's something in the water in between the people and the ship and you say there's a story here right and until you go up and inspect the you know the name tag and the artist and year and all that you don't know anything about it other than what you see um that this story of the uh abram parsons body being found um is preceded by a little thing I made note of. I made note of that paragraph at the end here, just and it says, help, right? You said, I needed your help, I got it. Um, I want to point to this that I think is just a wonderful way of setting, setting the scene. Round one of these holes, a small crowd was pressing eagerly while one man standing in the hollow was lifting a few, the few remaining stones off of something that lay there at the bottom. And then he says, I pushed my way between the straggling legs of a big fisher lad and peered over with the rest. He's actually so small that he can crawl between the legs of a large boy. He's a baby, essentially. When he witnesses this scene, of course he doesn't know what's going on. Of course he doesn't know the full story. This is him recalling a memory, is what I would say. And I think that's backed up by this next paragraph, the the one with all the blackness. And it feels like it could be a comedy, but it's so dark um, and not comedic that you you know you say well this maybe that comedy that he's he's talking about uh, and the the wonderful threat he gives at the beginning, which I want to go back to. Um, there's a reason for all this humor. It's defensive. It is to fight the horror. Um, and I want to read this black, the the black paragraph as I'm calling it. Uh, from these sea-scented scenes, again with the comedy of the the sounds, right, and of sounds of waves, sea-scented scenes. My memory travels to a weary land where dead ashes lie, and there is blackness, blackness everywhere. Black rivers flow between black banks. Black, stunted trees grow in black fields. Black, withered flowers by black wayside. Black roads lead from blackness past blackness to blackness. And along them trudge black, savage-looking men and women. And by them, black, old-looking children play grim, unchildish games. 
boy, he's in a bad mood. I, I was thinking <laughs> a rather dark mood. Um, then I was thinking, and this is accompanied by an illustration. Um, but I was thinking uh, illustrations not particularly striking until you look at look at it a certain way. But it's in black and white. Um, and I notice in almost none of the uh, images in this whole story uh, are there any people illustrated. There is a there's one I think, but I was thinking, well, this could just be nighttime, right? He's a child, um, you know. He's there's a black tree and there's a black road and there's people, except that's not what it is. When this it continues, when the sun shines on the on this black land, it glitters black and hard. And when the rain falls, a black mist rises towards heaven, like the hopeless prayer of a hopeless soul. Um, it's pretty clear, um, despite all the humor uh, in Jerome K. Jerome's works, that he has a, a great strain of religiosity in him. Um, it's in this story, too. Um, and his later writings apparently were a lot more religious in, in subject, as well as uh, having that present. Um, but this this section, after the, the transition to this black land, it just seemed incredibly mysterious to me. And I wrote, mysterious. Next page. Still mysterious. What does all uh -huh. this mean? And then, with the ending, where they leave their home, um, there's a hubbub outside the house, there's people in the house, they have to leave their home. Well, and, I think maybe you should set that scene a little more explicitly. Well, um, I've got I've got a few things highlighted here. Um, we were on the stairs huddled close together, and in the darkness I felt my mother's arm steal round me and encompass me so that I was not afraid. Then we waited while the silence round the frightened whispers thickened and grew heavy till the weight of it seemed to hurt us. I, all I meant was that uh, it, uh, when I gave a summary earlier, I had not mentioned that this story ends with the most extended scene. And in that extended scene, there seemed to be there seems to be a crowd that is assaulting his family home yes. with his father uh, somehow trying to arrange for protection. And it's not at all clear exactly what happens. But that's a long and uh, claustrophobic uh, terrified description. Uh, and I don't want to end the show talking about this because I no, want to no, go no. back. But um, let's talk about what's going on here. So I didn't. Yeah, know yeah that's 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 why I wanted to give the background so people would understand what we're talking about. Absolutely, let's talk about it. So I didn't. I didn't. I didn't understand this. I just knew that it was it was like mysterious, and I think that that's exactly what I'm supposed to take from it. That it is mysterious. That these are very specific things that are happening, but they're not describable by the author because he doesn't know how to describe them because he's, I would say, four or five at the most. He's very, very young. And he knows that this stuff is happening. He sees the actions. He sees their faces. But he doesn't have... It, it, there's almost no words uh, transcribed here. And what few they are, they're from the mother or... Uh, his father, right? There, there's almost nothing from from this. I I don't even want to say strangers who are in this house in the middle of the night. Um, but when I I read about his life, 
I'm like, oh, I know exactly what this is. It's totally clear to me now. And I, I, I don't think that the readers of The Idler would have known that. I don't think that they would have... I think they, they would take it like I would. I just, it's, what is this mysterious thing? This, this silhouette that's outlined that I can't identify. And I, I think that that's astonishing. This is an astonishing story in that I don't know of anything quite like it. Where you're you think given, there's a firm answer here from his biography? Oh yes, absolutely. I well, think tell us, pray. Okay, so um, in his early life, this is from the Wikipedia entry. Uh, the family fell into poverty owing to bad investments in a local mining industry, and debt collectors visited often. An experience Jerome described vividly in his autobiography, *My Life and Times*, 1926. Um, he. They were being evicted. That's what's going on there, and I recognize it. Obviously, that's what's that's what all that's about. People are owed money. They've come to collect. He's trying to prevent violence. The father's trying to prevent violence, um, but they don't have anything, and they're forced to leave at the end of the story. This is a trauma that he's recalling and writing down, but he's not writing it down. Um, and explaining it uh, as an adult would. He's writing it down and explaining it to him as it seemed. And, and that could that could indeed well be. Um, it's a, a very good way to concretize what happens at the end. I would suggest, though, that even though it can be read concretely, what he gives us is something that is more general. Um its story ends with this. I draw, we we've we've had the the people crashing into the house. At no point does the narrator recall him leaving the house, himself leaving the house. But he does say, um, "I drop into a restless sleep and dream that I have broken a chapel window, stone throwing, and have died and gone to hell." Back to the religiosity and so on. Mm -hmm. At length, a cold hand is laid upon my shoulder and I awake. The wild faces have vanished and all is silent now. And I wonder if the whole thing has been a dream. My father lifts me into the dog cart. That is a small pony cart. And we drive home through the chill dawn. So whatever this is, now he's coming back. Although we never saw him go out. So it sounds dreamlike, but he is going home. They haven't been evicted, although they may be in the process, um, as you say. My mother opens the door softly as we alight. She does not speak, only looks her question. It's all over, Maggie, answers my father very quietly as he takes off his coat and lays it across a chair. We've got to begin the world afresh. My mother's arms steal about my his neck, and I, feeling heavy with a trouble I do not understand, creep off to bed. The leaving us not understanding seems to me to be at least as much to the point as the possibility that we could construct a real life experience for which this could stand as a silhouette. But that line, we've got to begin the world afresh, is so heavy, so ponderous. And and the child 
he knows that this is the responsibility, but but he can't bear it. That is, he cannot accept it. He can't take it upon himself. And he creeps off to bed um, because he's too sleepy, because he can't help them, because he is, in fact, Adam Parsons. He should be the young man who will start the new world and tend to his flock. But he hasn't the strength because the world is a black, bleak place. Um, we don't know. It's a story that throws, it seems to me, the whole question of interpretation, not just of stories, but of what the world is like, what people do to each other and what we maybe can do for them or owe to them. It throws all of that into heavy question. Which is why I don't want to end the the story of our telling this story with all that darkness because he doesn't end it that way I don't think I think that that's that is the ending of the story but to me he is an adult now and he's he's got some stuff that he could really make things dark <laughs> I want to go back to that one you alluded to and then the one other on the first page it's so good I mention this in charity hoping that it may alleviate the sufferings of those who grieve because I write as I do now Um, that is uh, in this story they will be well advised not to stir me too deeply with their complainings I do not like to seem to threaten but perhaps it is only fair for them to uh, for for, it is only fair to state that I have sketched out and stowed away in my desk a six-act tragedy that it would not take very much to make me hunt it out and finish it. He's threatening his critics. You say, you don't like me writing this dark? You better not threaten. You better not say that or I'll really make it dark. <laughs> You're not allowed to complain about him not writing comedy because he'll, he'll really make it dark if you if you don't. It's like he's got a gun in his desk that he's going to threaten you with. It's hilarious. Um, but the first page ends not with all that darkness. It's, it ends in a hilarious, I think maybe the most hilarious line I've ever read by Jerome K. Jerome, and he is a very funny guy, about the Muffin Man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good description. I love it. I like the twilight of the long gray street, and with the wailing cry of the distant Muffin Man... One thinks of him as strangely mitered. He glides by the by through the gloom, jangling his harsh bell as the high priest of the pale spirit of indigestion, summoning the devout to come forth and worship. <laughs> He's so funny. I understand, I understand your your desire to hang on to that, Jesse. If if the best way to end the story is to go back and reread the beginning. That only shows that there is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.